There are some people who live their life different than the rest of us. It seems that they're people who are just content regardless of what's happening around them or what's happening to them. The Apostle Paul was one of those type of people. In fact, Paul wrote much of the New Testament, and in one of the letters that we have to a church, he makes this kind of outlandish statement about contentment. Here's here's what he writes. He says that, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in in want or, or, or having plenty. And it's just like when you read that, you go, how is that possible? How is it possible that you could be content in any and every situation? What, what does that even look like? What's the secret to that type of contentment? And to help us answer that question today, God gives to us a story. And it's a story that comes to us in that very first Christmas. And it's the story of a man named Joseph. When we first meet Joseph, he's not exactly super content. He's actually relatively normal when we first meet Joseph. But then we see that Joseph goes through a series of situations that were, were absolutely awful. I mean, just some really big trials, some, some really big challenges. God asks him some, to do some things that, that are just pretty incredible. And despite how difficult it was, the, the guy is incredibly content. The question is, what happened in Joseph's life that allowed him to be so content? How did he learn the secret of contentment? And by paying attention to his story in God's word, I believe that God will help to reveal for us how we can become people who can also find that secret of contentment. So to do that, we're going to open up God's Word. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to open it up to Matthew chapter 1. And if you want to use one of the blue Bibles that we provide for you in the seat back, it's page 1468 of those blue Bibles. Page 1468. And those of you who are joining us online, uh, we'd love you to have a Bible open as well. Uh, So good to have you with us. Uh, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. Story of contentment through the life of Joseph. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, in order for us to understand what this story is really about and how contentment flows through this, we need to understand just a little bit more about how marriage worked in the first century in Israel. It's different than how we think about marriage today. So today, when a couple wants to get married, what they do is uh, that they've been dating for a little while, sometimes a long while, and eventually they decide we're going to get married, and uh, they, one, one proposes to the other, they become engaged. And then, unfortunately, they spend a whole lot of time planning for the wedding day and a little bit of time planning for the marriage. We should probably reverse that. But it's all this excitement, and this couple's coming together, and hopefully their, their, their family is supportive and involved. Very different from how it was in the first century in Israel. In this point in time, uh, the families were much more involved. 
In fact, uh, Mary and Joseph probably consented to the marriage, but their fathers in particular would have been the ones that probably initiated the conversation. And in all likelihood, Mary and Joseph probably never even had a private conversation, just the two of them. You know, the idea was that when these families went into this agreement that they were going to have their, their children become married, uh, it became a legal binding agreement. So the only way to get out of an engagement was to file for divorce. That's how serious this, this situation was and how serious the, 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 the betrothal process was. And, and so for Mary and Joseph, they, they again, were aware of this, but, um, but probably not real close personally. And so the fact that the two of them never would have even have been alone together to have a conversation makes the fact that Mary becomes pregnant all the more scandalous. I mean, women in this day and in this culture just were never permitted to be alone with the man. So how did she become pregnant? I mean, this was a big deal. In fact, there was some Old Testament laws that spoke about that engagement process and how serious God took it. Uh, that in Deuteronomy chapter 22, some laws are given that if a woman is engaged to be married to a man, she basically is considered to be that man's husband, even though the two of them don't live together and haven't even been together yet. Uh, So much so that if she then is caught in the act of adultery with another man, she's guilty of adultery, and it at that point in time was a capital punishment. They could be stoned. That's how serious this was. And so when Joseph hears the news that Mary is pregnant, it was probably devastating for him. Because the place that they lived was a relatively small village, probably less than a thousand people. So it's not like Joseph could have just like gone and started dating somebody else and found somebody else to be married. This is a huge deal. You gotta get this legal divorce and then our family's gotta go find another family with a woman who's about marrying age and then go through that whole process all over again. And for Joseph, all of his hopes and his dreams and his expectations about what life was going to be like have now been shattered. I mean, he was looking forward to starting to have kids and if, and if he had a son, he would have the privilege of being able to teach his son the same craft that, that, that he had as, as a carpenter or a craftsman. And he would have probably looked forward to teaching all of his children the Torah, just like his father would have taught him the Torah. This was a chance to, to continue the legacies that, that had been passed down from generation to generation. And all of that came crashing down when Mary announced that she was pregnant. So he's hurt. He's probably a little angry. But what's amazing about Joseph is he doesn't take out his frustration and his anger on Mary. So while she's pregnant, and so clearly she's guilty in everyone's eyes of adultery, because how else do you become pregnant? He wasn't buying the whole God is the father thing at at this point. And and what he could have done is he could have thrown the full letter of the law at Mary and and publicly humiliated her or, or even worse. Scripture says that Joseph was a man who was faithful to the law. So the law was that if the woman and another man were caught in adultery, then they were guilty of capital punishment, but there was no other guy. Where's the guy? We know Mary's pregnant, but where's where's the guy? And so it wouldn't have been right for her to face the full consequence of adultery without the other party involved facing the consequence. And then Joseph maybe wondered, 
Well, maybe something else happened. Unfortunately, it was all too common in Israel to have Roman soldiers who would come into villages, and if they could find a woman who was by herself, often they would grab her and abuse her. And perhaps that's how the pregnancy came about. And maybe Mary was just so traumatized by it that she made up this other story. So Joseph didn't really know exactly what happened. And so that's why in, in, a, in a moment of just deep wisdom and commitment to God's word, but listen, also a commitment to God's heart, Joseph decides, I can't marry this woman. Clearly she's committed adultery. That would be wrong for me to move forward with the wedding. But I, I don't want her to have to suffer the consequences of, of the fullness of the law because we just don't know the full story and so he makes the wise decision to divorce her quietly. Joseph does the right thing, but he does it in the right way because of how much he loves God and loves God's word. And so he, he gets ready to divorce her quietly, but then God intervenes. And this is where we see Joseph start to grow in contentment. Here's, here's what happens, verse 20. But after he had considered this, so considered divorcing her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." So the angel shows up and says, hey, Joseph, actually Mary's right about the whole God's the father thing, so you should go ahead and go through with the wedding and then just give the child the name Jesus. Which, if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, this is a little light on the details. <laughs> right, like how, could, what do you mean the Holy Spirit conceived this in her? And like, what, where are we supposed to live? And how are we supposed to explain this to our relatives and to our neighbors? And this is going to be controversy, and people are going to wonder what happened, and they're going to ask a lot of questions, and how do we explain this, and how long are we going to have to explain this? And could you maybe tell my mom that this wasn't my deal, that this is from the Holy Spirit? And what's so just incredible about God is that we, we approach situations and we want to know all the details and we're stuck in the, the minutia of all this stuff and God just has a way of cutting right to the heart of the matter. So the angel shows up and the angel doesn't spend any time in giving a message from God about any of these details. He says, here's what matters most, Joseph. This is directly from God. Do not be afraid. That's what matters most. Don't be afraid which I find surprising. When was Joseph afraid? I mean, you read the verses before this and you don't see a man who is afraid. You see a man who is wise, who is calculated, who is thoughtful, who knows God's word and is trying to live up to it. We don't, we don't see a guy who is afraid. But God knew. Because there are times in our lives when we're afraid of things and we don't even know that we're afraid of them. But God does. And what God knows is our fear often holds us back. And that at the heart of us being discontented is our fear. What was Joseph afraid of? I mean, Joseph probably had a lot of things to be afraid of. I mean, Joseph, in, in all likelihood, was 
probably afraid to take Mary home to be his wife because she had clearly committed adultery in his mind because she was pregnant. And that probably meant for him that maybe this woman wasn't pursuing God in the same way I'm pursuing God. Maybe this woman doesn't love God's law like I love God's law. And he recognized that it would be harmful to bring her home as his wife because if they didn't agree on pursuing God, then their marriage was going to be really difficult. In fact, some of you know that. Some of you are are dealing with a marriage right now where you and your spouse are, are both not pursuing God in the same way. It's really hard to raise a family and to run a household when, when you don't agree on our relationship with the Lord or how fervently we're going to pursue him together. And so maybe Joseph recognized the wisdom of saying, I, I should be afraid to take her home as, as my wife. And then, of course, no doubt, Joseph was afraid of all the gossip he was afraid of what people were going to say. He was going to have to explain this all the time. I mean, it was just like every, for the rest of his life, he was going to have to defend and explain and, 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 and hear chatter and backhanded comments. And there's probably just a lot to be afraid of. And Joseph may not have even been very conscience, conscious of his, of his fear, but it was there. And God knew. And God knew, you're never going to be content, Joseph, if you're afraid. So the angel shows up and doesn't give any details and says, here's what matters most, don't be afraid. And the reason for that is, is because of this, this big idea that we're not content because we're afraid. We're not content because we're afraid of something. I know a guy right now who is not content in his marriage. And when you strip back all the arguments and all the disagreements that he and his wife have had, and she did this, and she's unreasonable, and I just, you know, she's impossible, and nobody could live with her, and you, you get through all of that, and you strip it all the way back, in his most vulnerable moment, what he will tell you is that he is afraid that he will never live up to the expectations he thinks his wife has of him. And that fear has caused him to be so discontent with the marriage that he, he just wants out. Or I know several people right now who are, who are just not content with the jobs that they have. And if they're honest, they'll, they'll tell you that the reason that they're not content with the job is they feel like that they deserve something better at this point. That, that they should be part of a better team, they should be doing more important work, they should have a higher status, they should have a higher salary, that look what they've done, and, and, and that if I stay here and I, and, I, and I stay in this position or I stay with this organization or I stay in this, this, this spot, that I'm, I'm just never gonna be able to amount to all the things that I think I can be, and I'm, I'm afraid that this isn't gonna be enough for me. So they're not content with where they're at. See, when we're not content, it is a great sign that there is something that we're afraid of. But once God deals with our fear, then we can become people who can be content. We can be content to trust God with whatever he has for us in any and every situation. And that's what we see in the life of Joseph. Once God deals with his fear right away, the rest of Joseph's story, we see a man who is incredibly content despite all the things 
that he has to go through. And so for us, I think a way for us to to apply this message to our lives is to say that there are, are really, in the life of Joseph, two signs for us that we are living lives of contentment. That we've, we've given our fears to God, we're fully trusting him, and we are content. And we see these two signs in the life of Joseph. The first one is this. The first one is that we obey God. It's the first sign that you're content. To trust God is that you obey him. The first sign that you and I are living lives of contentment is that we are obedient to God. And we see this in Joseph's life right away. So as soon as Joseph wakes up from that first dream where the angel said, take Mary home to be your wife and name the baby Jesus, uh, we, we see how Joseph responds. It, it happens in verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Like right away, immediate obedience. He just wakes up and he does it. He doesn't like go into a season of prayer and fasting to decide if it was really the angel or he doesn't call his mentor and say like, I had this dream, what do you think? Or he didn't make a pro and con list of like, should I take Mary home or not take Mary home? He, he just does it. God said it, I'm trusting God, and he responds right away. He is immediately obedient to the word that God gave to him. You say, well, how obedient was Joseph? Look at verse 25. This is the extent of his obedience. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Guys, if you delay the honeymoon several months, right, that's a sign you're patient and you are content, right? That's a sign of a guy that's very content to trust God, just immediately obedient. Which means, in our lives, whenever we see an area of disobedience, that's a sign for us that we're not content about something. And if we're not obedient, because we're not content, it's because there's something under there that we're afraid of. So, students, some of you are spending time with your friends, and you're doing things that you know aren't right. You're involved in conversations that you know you shouldn't be involved in. You're watching things you know you shouldn't watch. You're doing things you know you shouldn't do. And the reason that you're doing those, even though you know it's wrong, is because at the core of it, you're afraid. And what you're afraid about is you're afraid that if you don't go along with the crowd, if you, if, if you say no to your friends, if you push back against them, that, that they're going to make fun of you, they're going to leave you, and you're going to be all alone. So you're afraid to obey God and not content to trust him. And, and you're not alone in that. That's true for all of us. I mean, God is so clear in his word that those of us that know Jesus, that we are called to be his witnesses, that we are called to testify to others what God has done in our lives. But there are many of us who are disobedient to that commandment. We, we aren't telling other people about Jesus, and we're not telling them about what he's done in our lives, and the reason we're not is because we're afraid. We fear rejection. We're worried that if we are honest with somebody about following Jesus, that they might think it's weird, or they might think that we're one of those type of people, or or, or whatever, and so the relationship might might, might become distant, or we might lose influence in that person's life, and and that may be it, and so we just decide that it's better to just not be obedient, because maybe God didn't really say that, or doesn't really want me to be a witness, and so we just hold back. Or others of us, we're 
We're afraid that, not that they're gonna reject us, but we're afraid that they're gonna reject God. Because what if we say it wrong? What if we don't answer their questions in the right way? Or, or what if, I, what if I, didn't, I didn't draw the analogy the right way and then they reject God forever and now it's my fault? And so out of the fear that they might reject God, we ironically disobey God by not being honest about what he's done in our lives because we're afraid. We're not content to trust God. So whenever we see an area of disobedience in our life, it actually can be really helpful for us to say, that just means that we're not fully content with the Lord, and that's because there's something under there that we're afraid of. But if we can deal with our fear, we can then become content to trust God and become obedient. And that's what we see in the life of Joseph. Now, in that obedience, we also then see the second sign that you and I are living lives of contentment. And again, we see this in the life of Joseph. It's that in our obedience, we do the second thing, and that's we do not grumble. That's the thing that I think is probably most impressive about the story of Joseph. I mean, God had this guy go through a lot. So here's what happens. Uh, He has all these plans and preparations for what life is going to be like, finds out that his fiance is pregnant, goes through the whole, like, actually God is the father with the angelic vision, and and he takes her home to to be his wife, and they go through the the whole process of the birth of Jesus, which we know is, is the Christmas story, and it wasn't an easy journey, and it wasn't easy for Joseph or Mary to go through that whole process. The shepherds show up, and then probably several months, maybe a year or more later, some magi arrive, and they have some rather odd gifts that they present to Jesus, and then Joseph, in the middle of the night, has a dream that King Herod wants to come and kill Jesus, which probably meant his whole family as well, because Herod wouldn't want a whole bunch of witnesses. And so Joseph realizes that Jesus' life is at stake, and probably his and Mary's, and, and he has to leave immediately. And so in the middle of the night, he flees to Egypt. He becomes a refugee, like right away, overnight. And he goes all the way to Egypt for an undetermined amount of time, and he's just waiting there, hiding out as a refugee. And then uh, King Herod dies. The angel comes and lets him know, Herod's dead, you can move back. So he gets up and they immediately move back into Israel. But then he finds out that Herod's son is over certain regions and there's certain places that are safe and not safe to, to live. And so the angel says, go to the region of Galilee. And he goes there and settles there. And throughout all of those experiences, which would have been life-altering experiences for you or for me, if an angel visits you in the middle of the night, you're writing a book about it, right? This happened to Joseph four times. And he, and he flees to escape somebody trying to murder his, his family, and he comes back. I mean, this is, these are life-altering events, and the dude never complains. And I think the fact that they went to Egypt and back is really significant. Because if you're familiar with the story of Israel, that's part of their journey. And if you're unfamiliar with the story of Israel, here it is. The people of God were, were chosen by God, and they were living in, in the place that we now call the promised land or Israel at the time. And then because of a famine in the land, that family actually had to go into Egypt uh, to be able to get supplies actually through another man named Joseph. That's a story that's found in, in the Old Testament book of Genesis. And then after being in Egypt and and growing as a people group, uh, the Egyptians got nervous. They became afraid of the Israelites, and so they enslaved them. And for 400 years, they lived in slavery, and then God emancipated the people of Israel, and they came out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land of Israel. 
But as the people of Israel were making that journey, they came out of Egypt and they were obedient to God on their way to Israel. As the people came out of Egypt, they were occasionally obedient to God on their way to Israel. And as they were occasionally obedient to God, they almost always grumbled about it. It's just constant complaining. They were grumpy about the journey, they were grumpy about the directions, they were grumpy about the food that God provided, they were just grumpy about everything, they complained about everything. So in their obedience, they are grumbling against God. Do you know that when we grumble against God, even if we're obedient, it is sinful? Because it's not honoring to God. I mean, think about it in, in our own context, or our own lives. I mean, let's say that, that uh, you're parents and, and you have children in your home, and you ask them after a routine dinner, like, hey, kids, we're gonna clean up the dishes. Can you help us wash the dishes? And when you say that, they get up and they leave the room. Are they obedient to you? No. Are they honoring you? No. Is that wrong? Yes, right? So you're like, hey, come on back. I said we're gonna wash the dishes. And they're like, okay, fine. So then they start washing the dishes, and so they're obedient in their behavior. They're washing the dishes. But as they do it, I mean, you probably can't even fathom this, but as they do it, they're just complaining about it, right? And so they're washing the dishes, and they're like, my friends don't have to wash the dishes, and we've got a dishwasher, and what are you even doing? Like, do you even do anything around this house? Why do I have to do everything? And you're like, okay. And so are they honoring you in this moment? No, they're not honoring you. <laughs> and it's a little close to home, doesn't it? Grumbling against God is a great sin. Because at the heart of it, here's the deal. We're not content in what we're having to do because we're afraid of something. So let me just give you a personal example. This is from my own life. So one of the areas where God tells us that we are to be obedient to him is in the area of our finances. So God tells us that he has given us every single thing that we have. And so one of the ways we recognize that one of the ways we honor that and acknowledge that is we give a portion of what he has given to us back to him. And how we do that is we give it through the local church because that's God's agent here on earth. So when Stephanie and I first got married, we made a commitment that we wanted to honor God with our finances. And so for that very first year of marriage, we made a decision that 10% of whatever we earn, we're gonna give back to God through the local church. And every year of our marriage, we've done this. And every year, at the end of the year, we, we run a report to say, okay, what do we make? And what's 10% of that? And did we give that back to the church? And, and so we just always have done that. That's, that's been one of the ways we've been obedient to God in our finances. And so this, and this happened several years ago, but this, this is, you know, we've been doing this for just a couple of years. We, we, were, we were still early on in, in our marriage. And so it's January or end of January, and we get one of those uh, tax forms actually here from the church to say, this is what you gave in the last year. And so I, I, I brought it over to Stephanie. I was like, hey, come, come look at this. And I was like, check this out. It doesn't matter what the number was, but I was like, look at that number. I was like, that's how much we gave to the church this last year. Like, isn't that awesome? Like, that's a pretty good chunk of, chunk of money. Fine, like we're ob being obedient to God. And then just innocently enough, I just made this comment and I just, I just said to her, I was like, can you imagine what we could have done with that money if we wouldn't have given it? Yeah, you're laughing nervously because you know what happens. Innocently enough, but here's what happens. The, the next several weeks, I just start noticing things I've never noticed before. I, I pull into the parking lot at work, and I'm like, why is it that everybody else is driving a car like this, and I'm driving a car like this? 
Right, or we, we go to uh, our small group uh, with other people that are, we're here at the church, and when we pull up to their house, and I'm like, why is their house a lot nicer than, than, than our house? Or then I'm in a meeting at, at work, and, and we're having this presentation to one of our clients, and I'm looking around the table, and everybody's wearing suits, and I'm wearing a suit, and I'm like, why is everybody else's suit so much nicer than my suit? And, and then I start doing some mental math, and I'm like, okay, well, so if I would take the money that I gave to the church and I would spend that on my car, like, okay, they're driving this car, maybe I'd be driving this car, or we'd live in this neighborhood, or I'd be able to shop at these stores, and all of a sudden, I'm now grumbling in my mind against God. Now, am I still being obedient? Yeah, I'm still giving faithfully. We haven't changed that. Am I honoring God? No, I'm not honoring God. <laughs> you can sit there every Sunday. Do you know why I wasn't honoring God? It's because I was afraid. And I wouldn't have known to say it that way at the time. But I was afraid that by being obedient to God, I was missing out on the good life. And that God really didn't have my best interest in mind. I was afraid to trust him. And so I complained. Now I tell you that story not to make it about giving. That's just an example about how I was grumbling against God in the midst of obedience. This passage of scripture is not about giving. This message is not about giving. But I tell you that to say this is how it works. That when we're afraid, we're not content. And when we're not content, we're not honoring God because we're not content to trust him. And then we miss out on what God is doing in our lives. But the reverse is true. When we are content because God has dealt with our fears, we start recognizing what God is doing in and through our lives. Not because of us, but because of him. So Steph and I, like, we, we, swip, we, 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 we switched our thinking on this. I, I actually I had to repent. I mean, I literally was like, God, I'm sorry. Like, this is, I'm thinking wrong thoughts about this. I have to stop thinking this way. And what, what helped me to, to move a, a different direction with this is instead of playing the game of like, what could we have spent that money on? Well, we, we just don't allow ourselves to do it. Even if I like casually bring something up to Steph, she's like, oh, stop, remember, we don't, we don't do that anymore. And, and instead, here's what we do. We, we think, what, what has God been able, what, what, what has happened because we've, we've given? What has God done because we've given? And so, you know, whenever we would, you know, be sitting in the seats like you. This is before I became a pastor, and we heard a faith story about how somebody came to faith in Jesus Christ, and they said yes to him, and, and they started seeing their life transform. We thought, hey, we're, we're part of that story. Or whenever we saw a baptism, or whenever a global partner came and talked about the work that they're doing internationally, and, and that's because Wooddale sent them, or whenever we heard about people who were able to help financially that were in the community that were in need, we recognized, hey, we're, we're, we're just a little part of that story. We had kind of like an owner mentality, like that transformation is all possible because we chose to give. And see, in the midst of being content, now we start to see what God's doing in our lives through our obedience and, and through our lack of grumbling. And that is exactly what we see in the story with Joseph. Because there's a pattern that happens here in this story. That as soon as Joseph is obedient to God and does not grumble in his obedience, we see how God fulfilled his own word. And that happens three times in this, in this section here in Matthew. 
So let me share it with you. The first time the angel comes and visits Joseph and says, take Mary home to be your wife, and he does. Here's what happens in verse, uh, chapter one, verse 22 and 23. All this took place to, and here's the key word, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in chapter two, uh, we have right after the Magi come and visit, the angel comes and tells Joseph, you gotta go to Egypt, and he wakes up and he does it right away, and he doesn't complain about it. And here's what happens in verse 14 of chapter two. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And here it is again. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. And then again, when they're in Egypt, the angel says, come on back to, to Israel. And he comes back to Israel, and they're like, we don't know where to live because we're scared. And then it was like, go to Galilee. And he goes to Galilee, and here's what happens in verse 22. I'll pick it up in the second half. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went to live in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. See, when God deals with our fear and we get it out of the way, and we realize that we can be content to trust God, we start realizing what God is doing in and through our lives. So how do we apply this message? I want to leave us with two questions that I believe we need to ask ourselves. And they're questions that we need to ask ourselves or ask the Lord to reveal to us. And so in just a moment, we're going to do that. But here's the two questions. The first question is simply this, where in your life are you being disobedient? So we just ask ourselves, where am I being disobedient or where am I complaining? So where is it? Maybe it is in your finances. Maybe it's in the language that you're using. Maybe it's in some of the shows that you're watching. Maybe it's what you're paying attention to on social media. Maybe there's an area of unforgiveness in your life. Or maybe there's a lie that you're holding on to and you haven't been honest about the truth. Or maybe in the midst of what you're doing to be obedient, you've just been really disappointed that God hasn't blessed you like you think he should have blessed you and you're just complaining about that. So what's that area for you? Once you have that area, once God reveals that area to you, here's the second question. What am I afraid of? There's a fear somewhere. A fear of missing out, a fear of rejection, a fear of being alone, a fear of my reputation being ruined, fear of not finding significance, Fear of thinking that I don't matter. God doesn't want us to be afraid. So often in scripture, God comes to us and he says, do not be afraid. Because once God deals with our fear, we can be content to trust him. So I want to invite you to bow your heads with me right now. And we're just gonna ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the answers to those questions personally. And so Father, we come into your presence and Lord, we're so grateful for your word, 
But Lord, we're grateful for your spirit, which for those of us who have accepted Jesus lives within us. And so, Father, we just, in, in this moment, in this space, we yield to your spirit. And we ask for your spirit to reveal to us if there's any area in our life right now where we are not being obedient to you. Or any area in our life that in our obedience we have been grumbling. Father, as you bring those area, areas to mind, Lord, we then just ask that your spirit would reveal to us what are we afraid of? Father, what's the fear that's under this?